Pray with me. Lord, thank you for the gift of a new day. Thank you for the breath in our lungs. Thank you for hearts that beat. Thank you for eyes that see, ears that hear. We know, Lord, that every good and perfect gift comes down from the Father of lights. And so we praise you today. We thank you. Thank you for the church, the body of Christ. Thank you for your hand upon your church. Thank you, Lord Jesus, that you've said, I will build my church, and the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. So we thank you for West Hills. We thank you for seasons in the life of a local church. We thank you for this day and commit it to you for your glory. And now, Lord, as we open your word and study and think and ponder and meditate, we do pray that the Spirit of God would be our teacher, our encourager, our comforter. And now for myself, Lord God, I pray, let the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Amen. You know, the Christian faith is a faith that is filled with paradox, uh, seeming contradictions, things that just don't seem to really go together, and at times they even seem like they're opposites, and yet we know that they do go together. So much of our faith is based upon the reality of paradox and truths that might not appear at first to match up, but yet they do. It begins with Christ himself, the Son of God. I mean, if you think about the person of Jesus Christ, uh, the one by whom and for whom the entire universe was created, and yet taking upon himself the limitations of a human body. Um, The God who is outside of time, the God who created time, limiting himself to a calendar and 33 years on earth. The king who became a lowly servant, the crown of glory for a crown of thorns. These things just don't make sense. Exchanging the praises of all of heaven's angels, millions of angels praising him, exchanging that for the jeering of earthly crowds. It doesn't make sense. Who would do that? The source and giver of all life, Willingly and humbly laying down his life and succumbing to death. And so you've got paradox with Christ. And then as a result of paradox with Christ, seeming contradictions, you turn to the Christian life and you still have even just as much paradox. The first shall be last and the last shall be first? Where does that come from? Whoever exalts himself will be humbled. Whoever humbles himself will be exalted. That's not the way it works in the world. Whoever would save his life will lose it. Whoever will lose his life for my sake will save it. It doesn't make sense. When I am weak, the Apostle Paul said, then I am what? Strong. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet Various trials. These things don't go together. 
Now this morning I want to suggest to you a paradox of sorts, not in the strictest sense of the word, but in the sense of two things that at first glance just don't seem to go together well. This past week we began a period of 21 days of prayer and fasting, first week leading up to, to today's vote of the membership. At the same time, this morning, we're beginning a five-week series of messages titled, Why You Need to Be in God's Word in 2019. And so today, I want to merge these two elements together <clears throat> and suggest that while you're fasting, you also need to be feasting. You see, to fast is to go without. To feast is to indulge. To fast is to stay away from the banqueting table. To feast is to graze at the banqueting table. Fasting while feasting is saying no to the fleeting passions of the flesh while saying an emphatic yes to a lasting passion for God. It is decreasing my hunger for the world while increasing my hunger for the word. Now, in terms of fasting by itself, fasting, say, from various foods, uh, giving up caffeine or chocolate or <clears throat> candy or fasting, whatever it is physically that you're fasting from, if, if, if you, all you're doing is fasting, that's nothing more than a cleanse or a way to shed a few pounds after the holidays. And while these may have some physical merit, they have little or no spiritual merit in helping you draw near to God? Or how about fasting from other things? Uh, Maybe taking a week off from social media or no television or no shopping. Whatever it is that a person decides to forego, if if that's all you're doing, I mean, these can be acts of self-discipline, self-denial, but once again, these things are practiced by millions of people that don't know Jesus. You see, fasting without feasting on God is nothing more than an act of self-denial and asceticism, which can actually serve better than pretty much anything else. It serves your pride. The Apostle Paul told the Colossians, Colossians 2, verse 23, these have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they're of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. You see, what is evident to me from God's word is that for the believer, for the person who has come to know God's grace and mercy, has come to know that it is a gift of God, it's not by works, it's not by religious observances, it's not by fasting, it's not by giving money, it's not by rituals or anything external that a person does, that a person is saved, that a person is saved by grace through faith. For that person, fasting from anything must be combined with feasting on God. If you are to grow in godliness, if you're to go, grow to become more like Jesus himself, fasting is never to be done apart from feasting. Because it's equally evident to me that this is exactly what Jesus did. I am convinced that he fasted throughout his entire earthly ministry, earthly life leading up to his public ministry. You see, you don't enter into a 40-day fast without having done three-day and seven-day and 10 and 21-day fasts. By the time he was doing a 40-day fast, he had fasted many, many times 
over the course of his life. <clears throat> Jesus saw the need for fasting from the things of the world and then feasting with the Father and feasting on the law and the prophets and the Psalms. So that's the context. That's the framework of what we're going to be doing this morning. We're going to be working with the account out of Matthew chapter 4, familiar to many of you, where we find Jesus fasting in preparation for entering into a period of temptation that the devil is going to throw at him. Jesus is roughly 30 years old at this point in time. He has not yet begun his public ministry. Up until this point in time, his identity has remained hidden from the world. But now the time has come, <clears throat> excuse me, for his earthly ministry to commence. But it will only begin after he has endured an intense spiritual battle. A battle that he endured on behalf of you and me. It's in the context of this battle that we see both the elements, fasting and feasting, at work in Jesus' life. So with all of that as intro, please stand for the reading. <clears throat> reading from God's Word, Matthew chapter 4. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, if, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down. For it is written, he will command his angels concerning you. And on their hands, they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. Jesus said to him, again, it is written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, all these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, be gone, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. Then the devil left him and behold, angels came and were ministering to him. Please be seated. <clears throat> Let me make some observations from this passage and a few others in terms of how fasting and feasting have to go together in the life of God's people. First of all, fasting while feasting is going to help you identify potential areas of spiritual vulnerability in your life. Areas of spiritual weakness in your life are going to come about as you fast and feast on God's word. It says, Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. Led up by the Spirit into the wilderness. The Judean wilderness, we'll show you a map up on the screen, is basically an area that reaches from the Dead Sea on the east almost all the way to Jerusalem. It's about 35 miles long, 15 miles wide. 
It is a hot, barren, desolate, desert-like region. I think the next picture is just one that sort of gives you an idea of what we're... We're not talking about the wilderness of Africa. We're not talking about the wilderness of South America. We're talking about the wilderness of the Middle East. One commentator writes, it is an area... Can you mute me just for a second? That's better. My wife and I have been getting over colds these last few weeks, and it's still a bit lingering. One commentator writes this. It is an area of contorted strata where the ridges run in all directions as if they were warped and twisted. The hills are like dust heaps. The limestone is blistered and peeling. The rocks are bare and jagged, and often the ground sounds hollow. And Jesus was out there for roughly six weeks. Now, Matthew tells us that Jesus was led, actually the word is compelled, by the Spirit to go out into the wilderness alone, by himself. Nobody was with him. For the specific purpose of being tempted by the devil. And so we know that God doesn't tempt anyone. God didn't do the tempting. Satan did the tempting. Nevertheless, Christ's temptation was a vital and necessary part of God's plan of redemption. Jesus needed to experience the full onslaught of the devil's power to tempt if we were to know for certain that we had a Savior who is able to sympathize with us in our weaknesses. And the writer of Hebrews states it very emphatically in chapter 4, we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. To the contrary, we have one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. So the question is, what would Satan's strategy be with the Son of God? Well, to a certain degree, it would be the same strategy as he uses with you and me. To go after an area where he thought maybe, just maybe, Jesus would be vulnerable here. And after you fasted for 40 days, you're hungry. And Matthew says exactly that. Jesus was hungry. This past September when I was hospitalized with my pancreatitis and the gallbladder that didn't want to cooperate, I didn't want to eat. It was, a, it was fasting by pain. And some of you have been there where you have, no, you have no appetite for food. You don't want food because it's going to run contrary to what you're hoping to experience. But after they took the gallbladder out and after my body started to recover, boy, I was hungry. I wanted to eat. Jesus wanted to eat after 40 days of willingly fasting. He was hungry. And so Satan tempts Jesus to use his divine power to turn some stones down on the ground into a couple of loaves of nice warm bread. It's as if Satan said, if you're the son of God, this shouldn't be any problem for you really at all to pull off. And you know that you're hungry and the Father hasn't sent his angels to come take care of you. What's, that? What's up with that? If he cared about you, he would have taken care of you in this time. And so, Jesus, you need to take care of yourself. You need to take this into your own hands. You see, friends, the devil is the founder and the expert when it comes to temptation. And he's able to craft a temptation based upon the person. No, he's not all-knowing. But he is extremely observant. 
and he and his minions have copious notes on what works the best, on which temptations prove the deadliest depending upon the person. Fasting while feasting on God's word allows God's spirit the opportunity to lead you into a wilderness of sorts, to take you into a wilderness where then the Holy Spirit can reveal to you areas of potential weakness, areas where you're going to be vulnerable to Satan's attacks. We've all got our vulnerabilities, don't we? You've got yours. I know what mine are. Abraham was weak when it came to telling the truth about the identity of his wife. Jacob was weak in the area of deception and trickery. David was weak in the area of lust. Peter was weak when he succumbed to the pressures of the Jews and acted hypocritically. I mean, we've all got our vulnerabilities. The question is, are you blind to them? And how does God go about showing you what those vulnerable spots are? I believe it is in fasting with feasting that the Spirit of God will accomplish that in your life. And so it was in the context of fasting, while at the same time having feasted on the, on, the, on the Old Testament scriptures, what are the Old Testament scriptures for us, that Jesus, that allowed Jesus to know how to respond to Satan's strategy. And Jesus responded, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. And so Jesus was quoting from Deuteronomy chapter 8 at that point which leads us to point number two. Fasting while feasting fortifies you against the devil's temptations when they come your way. You not only discover where you're vulnerable and where you're weak, but you actually are strengthened for that hour of temptation when it comes. Look at the second temptation. The devil took him to the holy city, set him on the pinnacle of the temple, and said to him, if you're the son of God, throw yourself down, for it's written... He will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. Jesus said to him, again it is written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. So he places him on the pinnacle of the temple. Now archaeologists think the pinnacle may have been a part of Herod the Great's reconstruction project of the temple. They believe that the pinnacle would have been on the eastern side overlooking the Kidron Valley. Josephus, the Jewish historian, tells us that from from the top of the temple to the bottom of the Kidron Valley would have been about a 450-foot drop. To give you an idea as to what that would look like today, give you a graphic, basically you're at that height on the arch to the bottom of the Kidron Valley. And by the way, early church tradition says that James, who was the the bishop or the elder in Jerusalem, was martyred by being thrown off the pinnacle of the temple. Now, in the first temptation, the need was already there. Jesus was hungry. In this temptation, it seems to me that Satan creates the perceived need for Jesus to be recognized for who he was. In other words, if you're the son of God, and we know that you are, And if God is your father, then surely he will come running to save you if you were to jump. And oh, what a display that would be, Jesus. I mean, that would rocket you to stardom. All of Jerusalem would either either see it for themselves or they would hear about it before the end of the day. 
I mean, if you really want the world to know that you're Messiah, this is the way to do it. And yet, friends, we know from Israel's history that big, dramatic miracles do not produce faith. I mean, there's that initial wow factor, as it is with the parting of the Red Sea. Wow! But if genuine faith isn't already there, it doesn't take long for the wow factor of a miracle to wear off and for people's selfish desires to be exposed. You see, Jesus didn't come to Jerusalem to do a David Copperfield or a Chris Angel. That's not why he came. And then notice, the devil uses against Jesus what Jesus used against the devil. The quoting of Scripture. You need to be mindful of this in your own life. He quotes from Psalm 91, but he quotes from Psalm 91 in a a way exactly opposite the meaning of Psalm 91. Psalm 91 is about trusting God. Satan turns it into testing God. And again, what did Jesus do? He just continued to rely on God's word. You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And Satan, that is exactly what you are calling me to do. Fasting while feasting and feasting while fasting fortifies you against the devil's temptations. You see, friends, you need to remind yourself of who it is that we're dealing with. When you're fasting, when you're in the word of God, when you're having your devotions, when you're you're wrestling with temptations, all these things that go with being being a follower of Jesus, you need to remind yourself who it is that you're dealing with. Because the very same one who tempted Jesus in the garden, in the wilderness that day, is the one who tempts you today. He's described as the prince of demons, Matthew 12. He's described as your adversary, a roaring lion who prowls around seeking someone who he can devour. He's described, Jesus calls him a murderer. He was a murderer from the beginning. The father of lies, he is a liar and the father of lies, he speaks out of his own character. There's no truth in him, Jesus says. Revelation 12, the great dragon, the ancient serpent. Revelation 12 again, the deceiver of the whole world and the one who accuses the brethren day and night. That's the one that you're dealing with. You see, Paul's exhortation to the church in Ephesus is needed just as much for us today as it was in the first century. Ephesians 6, put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. I want to read for you an extended piece from John Piper. It's in a couple of his books, several of his sermons. He talks about how we view prayer and how you view fasting, how you view the spiritual disciplines. In wartime, the newspapers carry headlines about how the troops are doing. 
In wartime, families talk about the sons and daughters on the front lines and write to them and pray for them with heart-wrenching concern for their safety. In wartime, we are on the alert. We are armed. We are vigilant. In wartime, we spend money differently. There is austerity, not for its own sake, but because there are more strategic ways to spend money than on new things for the home. The war effort touches everybody. We all cut back. The luxury liner becomes the troop carrier. Very few people think that we are now in a war greater than World War II, greater than any imaginable nuclear World War III, or that Satan is a much worse enemy than communism or militant Islam, or that the conflict is not restricted to any one global theater, but is in every town and city in the world, or that the casualties do not merely lose and do not merely lose an arm or an eye or an earthly life, but lose everything, even their own soul, and enter a hell of everlasting torment. Until people believe this, they will not pray as they ought. They will not even know what prayer is. So what have millions of Christians done? They have stopped believing that we're in a war. No urgency, no watching, no vigilance, no strategic planning, just easy peacetime and prosperity. And what did they do with the walkie-talkie? It's the metaphor he uses for prayer. They tried to rig it up as an intercom in their cushy houses and cabins and boats and cars, not to call in firepower for conflict with a mortal enemy, but to ask the maid to bring another pillow to the den. You see, when we fail to fast and when we fail to feast in conjunction with each other, what we are doing is revealing our lack of awareness or concern over the reality of spiritual warfare. We do not truly believe there's an enemy to be resisted. We do not truly believe that there's a battle to be fought. We do not truly believe that there is a warfare in which we are engaged. Observation number three, when you fast and feast at the same time, what's going to happen in your heart and soul is that it's going to intensify your hunger for God and his word. That's what's going to happen. You're going to have a greater hunger for God, a greater hunger for his word. Now, the practical question here is, how does fasting complement feasting? And I think it works like this. If you're attempting to develop a great hunger for God and his revelation of himself through the word, while at the same time you are perpetually satisfying yourself at the world's many banqueting tables, it will prove to be unfruitful. I mean, think about it. When you're full, you're not hungry. On New Year's Eve, we got together with some friends and there was a spread of food, more food than you could imagine. And all of it was delicious. And we grazed and grazed and grazed throughout the evening. And then I realized there was also a dessert table back behind the main spread. 
And I was so full that I really had very little appetite for the dessert. You see, friends, that's what happens to us spiritually. When we feast at the wrong table, instead of fasting from the things of the world, we're not hungry for the things of God. We have no appetite for the things of God, and so we go through it in sort of a rote fashion. I guess I'm supposed to fast, so I'll give up caffeine this week. As opposed to, Lord, by pushing myself away from that table, I want to draw near to your banquet table because I want hunger for you. I want to thirst for living water, not drink that doesn't satisfy. Fasting while feasting is going to intensify your hunger and your thirst because you're going to read the scriptures and the Spirit of God is going to have an opportunity in your hunger to say, Let me satisfy you. I want to wean you from some of the things of the world. I want to diminish your passions, the passions of the flesh, so that you will will have a passion for God. Pascal wrote in his Pensees, what else does this craving this craving that is within us that we just can't deny, what else does this craving proclaim but that there was once in man a true happiness of which all that now remains is the empty print and trace? This he, man, tries in vain to fill with everything around him, seeking in things that are not there the help he cannot find in those that are, though none can help. Since this infant abyss can be filled only with an infinite and immutable object, in other words, by God himself. So in other words, what we try to do in vain is to fill this, as Pascal says, this infinite abyss, this emptiness, with the things of this world, with food and drink and material possessions and worldly success and with likes on Facebook and with television and sports. We just keep trying to fill it up And once we come to Christ by God's grace, we realize not only the source and reason for this deep hunger within us, but the one who can satisfy it. And then in the Christian life, God says, I want to wean you off the things of the world and onto myself. That is why I would call you to fast. I do not call you to fast to add another ritual to your your plates. I'm not into rituals I want you, and I want for you to want me more than anything else. I want to be your greatest pleasure. It intensifies your hunger. Number four, it clarifies God's will and purpose. And so you fast when you, when you, when you aren't sure. You want to know what God's will is in a particular situation in your life. That's why we've been fasting here at West Hills. Now, you find several historical incidents in the Bible where either an individual or a group of people were seeking to know God's will, and so what did they do? They fasted and they prayed. 
That's exemplified for us in this book. I'll give you just a couple of examples. Ezra, Ezra chapter 8. Then I proclaimed a fast there at the river Ahava that we might humble ourselves before our God to seek from him a safe journey for ourselves, our children, and all our goods. So that's why they're fasting. They, they, they wanted God to provide a safe journey. He says, For I was ashamed to ask the king for a band of soldiers and horsemen to protect us against the enemy on our way. Since we had told the king, the hand of our God is for good on all who seek him, and the power of his wrath is against all who forsake him. So we fasted and implored our God for this, and he listened to our entreaty. Fasting and feasting clarifies God's will, brings in God's answers to specific needs. Or what about Nehemiah? Right there with Ezra. Ezra's, Nehemiah is told of those who had survived the exile, who remained in Jerusalem. The situation in Jerusalem is desperate. The, the, the walls have been broken down and the gates have been destroyed by fire. Then Nehemiah says, As soon as I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days, and I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. And I said, and I want you to notice in in what he says here in this prayer, the fact, the evidence that he was a man who feasted on God's word. And I said, O Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments. Let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servant that I now pray before you day and night for the people of Israel, your servants. Oh Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to the prayer of your servants who delight to fear your name. This thing's filled with scripture. This prayer is filled with scripture and give success to your servant today and grant him mercy in the sight of this man. And God did. God did. God answered that prayer. And I stress the fact that Nehemiah's prayer was based upon the word of God to remind you, you will only pray informed prayers when your mind is informed with the word of God. Otherwise, your prayers will be shallow. Your prayers will lack substance. You want your prayers to have meat. That's why you want your prayers to be informed out of your feasting. Lord, I was in Isaiah, and Isaiah says this, and I pray based upon what Isaiah said. Lord, I was in the Gospel of Mark, and Jesus said this in, in Mark, Mark chapter 6, and I pray according to this. You want your prayers to be informed with God's word. And so whether it's in seeking to know God's will in the life of our church, as we're doing today, or to clarify God's will and purpose in your life. Maybe some of you are at a, at a crossroads and you're making decisions. You need to know what to do. Without both fasting from the things of the world and feasting on the things of God, you're going to be relying completely on your own resources. You'll be relying completely on your own wisdom, not seeking it from God. You're relying on your own strength, not God's strength. Depending upon your skill sets and your knowledge and your education and whatever else is in your package, not on the Spirit. 
And Zechariah 4 says, not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord. That's the way God does things. And then lastly, number five, fasting with feasting magnifies God's glory. It magnifies God. It makes much of God. You see, friends, there's a, there is a kind of fasting that you want to avoid. And that is a fasting that makes much of you. And really doesn't make much of God at all. Let me show you a couple of examples. Zechariah chapter 7. Now the people of Bethel had sent Sherezer and Regemelech and their men to entreat the favor of the Lord, saying to the priests of the house of the Lord of hosts and the prophets, Should I weep and abstain in the fifth month as I have done for so many years? You see, they had been setting aside the fifth month as a month for weeping and abstaining, fasting. They've been doing this for seven decades. And the people say, should we keep doing this? The word of the Lord of hosts came to me. Say to all the people of the land and the priests, When you fasted and mourned in the fifth month and in the seventh, for these 70 years, was it for me that you fasted? And when you eat and when you drink, do you not eat for yourselves and drink for yourselves? Can you imagine going through a ritual for 70 years and you get to the end of 70 years and God says, that was all pretty worthless. And yet, brothers and sisters, there are many who do the exact same thing today. You find the same thing in Isaiah 58, classic passage. The people ask, why have we fasted and you see it not? See, they're mad at God. They're mad at God. Why have we humbled ourselves and you take no knowledge of it? And then God gives his response. Behold, in the day of your fast, you seek your own pleasure and oppress all your workers Behold, you fast only to quarrel and to fight and to hit with wicked fists. Your fasting isn't changing you at all. You're still just as miserable as you were before you started to fast. Fasting like yours this day will not make your voice to be heard on high. Is such the fast that I choose? A day for a person to humble himself? Is it to bow down his head like a reed and to spread sackcloth and ashes under? What kind of, what does that fasting do, friends? That fasting makes much of you. That fasting causes people to look at you. Look at me. Look what I did the first week of January. I gave up X. That's not true fasting. Will you call this a fast and a day acceptable to the Lord? Is not this the fast that I choose? to loose the bonds of wickedness, to undo the straps of the yoke, to let the oppressed go free and to break every yoke? Is it not to share your bread with the hungry and to bring the homeless poor into your house when you see the naked to cover him and not to hide yourself from your own flesh? Then, then shall your light break forth like the dawn. Then shall your healing spring up speedily. 
Then your righteousness shall go before you, and the glory of the Lord shall be your rear guard. Then you shall call, and the Lord will answer. You shall cry, and he will say, here I am. Do you see why you need to feast while you fast? Do you see why immersing yourself in the feast of God's word is so imperative? Because friends, it's just this simple. You do not want for it to be about you. You want for it to be about God and his glory, his honor, his majesty. The chief end of man is to glorify God. The chief end of man is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. And so fasting while feasting, feasting while fasting is for the ultimate purpose of glorifying God and enjoying him forever. And so West Hills family, as we continue on with our 21 days of prayer and fasting with feasting, may it be all about God, not about us. May it be about his glory and grace. May it be about his presence and power. May it be about his might and majesty, his ways, his wisdom, his perfections in all their beauty. May it be about God. And may the things of earth grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. Amen. Let's pray. Would you please take a minute and respond to what the Spirit of God may be saying to you today? Gracious Lord, we marvel at the Savior that we have. We are amazed at the wonderful paradox of the gospel. And now, for many of us in this room, you've called us to yourself. You've opened our eyes and unstopped our ears. You've taken out a heart of stone and replaced it with a heart of flesh. You've shown us our need for the Savior. and We've confessed our sins, that we are sinners who need to be saved by grace and not by works. And so forgive us for all those places and times in our lives when we have replaced ritual, performance, for the grace of God. And now, Lord, as, as your people, 
we have a desire within us by your grace to push away from the banqueting tables of the world and to draw near to you, to feast with you, to feast on you. For you, Lord Jesus, to satisfy our deepest cravings because for you we were created. We do love you. We praise you. We thank you. Thank you that you call us to yourself. Thank you that you hear our prayers. Make us into the people that you want us to be for, you, for our good, but ultimately, Lord, for your glory. This is our prayer. We pray in the matchless name of Christ, our Savior and our King. God's people agreed by saying,